And good morning, everyone, or good evening, or good afternoon, depending on where you are on this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight, that magical time between dusk and dawn when, well, when we cover the world and the solar system and all that lies beyond, because the mainstream well, it used to be they're not doing it, but there lately there's an awful lot of interesting things going on. Um, next week we're going to talk about uh, you know the imminent UFO disclosures because there have been some Pentagon leaks, more leaks. Um, there is a major story in the New Yorker about how the Pentagon has decided to finally kind of admit that there's something to the UFO phenomenon after you know, 70, 80 years. Um, so we're going to be moving in in that direction next weekend. But tonight we're going to be grappling with something that is truly extraordinarily intriguing and is almost ineffable. And that is who really runs the world? Or <clears throat> if you watch the news, is anybody running it? Because there's an awful lot of weird stuff going on and a lot of it is directly contradictory and at odds with each other and its other and whatever other. And so um, we're going to try to uh, open some doors and to pry open some secrets. And we'll get to that momentarily. Um, <clears throat> last night, as you know, we discussed another episode in the unfolding chapter, what the heck is on Mars and what does NASA and JPL really know about it? Well, <clears throat> in the interim, the Vice President of the United States, Kamala Harris, has now been appointed to be head of the Space Council, the National Space Council, which was begun. Um, I, I, I saw the story, which we have linked there to the New York Post, uh, was sent to me by one of our correspondents. But they have a major mistake. They seem to think that the Space Council was started by um, uh, George Bush, uh, uh, you know, uh, George W. Bush's father. It was not was actually begun by John Kennedy. And because we were losing in every direction to the Russians during the uh, era of the Cold War and the Soviet Union, um, <clears throat> he turned to his vice president, Lyndon Johnson, and he basically wrote him a memo, putting him in charge of space activity, space policy, and the National Space Council. And so it goes back to JFK, of course, uh, Vice President Harris will be the first woman to hold the position, and she's the first woman to be vice president, and it's going to be very intriguing to see um, what directions her chairmanship of the council uh, takes, because we are, we are at the precipice of some very interesting things. As you know, if you've been listening to the show, tonight still the Chinese are orbiting Mars, waiting waiting for something. We don't know what. The United Arab Emirates has a spacecraft orbiting Mars. Um, they're busily studying the Martian atmosphere, which if you've been following our work over the last several weeks, you know there's some major contentious questions about um, the Martian atmosphere. Has NASA been telling us everything it knows about the Martian atmosphere? And why should that bother any of us? And as uh, as we will get into as we go through the morning, is it part of a larger set of, <clears throat> shall we say, uh, stories as opposed to facts that are shaping a planet for people who are increasingly um, asking better and better questions? Also, live last night toward the end of the show, if you were listening, you heard us cover the live splashdown of the um, – uh, Dragon Resilience uh, spacecraft uh, with Crew-1, the first commercial crew in the history of American spaceflight. Up until now, all manned missions, and they have been manned missions, uh, have been manned by men. <laughs> and most of them, you know, U.S. military officers under the aegis of the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, and the National Space Agency. Well, as of uh, November <clears throat> last last year, the first crew to uh, inhabit the U.S. space station, the ISIS space station, the International Space Station, um, were carried into orbit and rendezvoused and docked and 
came aboard by via a commercial spacecraft that was not owned, is not owned by the U.S. government. <clears throat> In fact, it's owned by a company called SpaceX, which is run by a very interesting guy named Elon Musk, a name that has been mentioned on this program many, many times. Well, last night, after six months in orbit and breaking the record of Skylab back in uh, 19, uh, the, the mid-1970s, 75, I believe, um, the uh, SpaceX spacecraft, the Dragon spacecraft uh, resilient, landed successfully in the pre-dawn hours in a gorgeous moonlight night with seas a few inches in height. The Gulf of Mexico was like glass, if you saw any of the video. And they landed toward the end of our program, so we went to uh, uh, Mission Control Live, and we heard some of the call-outs as they were descending to the ocean on the parachutes, and they actually splashed down, and then the boats, the private fleet, not the, uh, you know, half the U.S. Navy, which used to go out and recover American spacecraft in the, quote, good old days, uh, went out to pick them up, and within an hour, they were on the ship, and they were undergoing medical checks. They were in excellent condition, and so the first crew ferried to and from space by a commercial spacecraft, like a space airline, um, successfully completed its six-month mission, breaking some interesting records, including the one that had stood for 53 years. This was the first mission since Apollo 8, which was my inaugural mission with Cronkite and CBS as their science advisor, uh, to land at night. Uh, we had not landed a human crewed spacecraft for 53 years until last night in the enterprising and entrepreneurial spirit of Musk and SpaceX. So we're standing on the threshold of some very interesting new frontiers, which takes me to item number three. By the way, if you want to follow along, um, you who are new to the show, uh, you're listening obviously on a device. Well, that device is really a computer. Even if it's called a phone, it's really a little computer with, by the way, more computing power than all the spacecraft in, um, in U.S. space history, just so you know what you're holding in your hand. And that phone can actually tap into the Internet, and you can find our home homepage uh, for The Other Side of Midnight. Uh, look for that URL, theothersideofmidnight.com. Once you get there, you will click on tonight's banner. Uh, which has dark, uh, Dr. Mark uh, Mirabello featured prominently uh, against a backdrop of a very Masonic uh, board, which we'll talk about later in the morning. Click on that. That will take you to his guest page for Sunday, May 2nd. And right under there, you will see uh, fast links to my items and Dr. Mirabello's items. Click on my items. That takes you down to my section of radio with pictures. Item number three, I don't know what it is about Musk. Again, reflecting back on what we just talked about in terms of the history he's making and the extraordinary leaps forward for American space efforts. Last night, remember, we talked about how he had been awarded the contract to develop the lunar lander for the Artemis program. And no sooner had NASA awarded him the contract, but he is now being sued by the two companies uh, that did not get the contract. Uh, there's something about Musk. Well, next Saturday, a week from last night, uh, Elon Musk is going to host Saturday Night Live. I know that's a stretch. I'm, I'm you know, uh, I watched him over the years. Uh, Musk does not have shall we say, the crispest sense of humor of any billionaires that you might come across. So this is going to be interesting at several different levels. What I find kind of bizarre is that no sooner was it announced that he was going to uh, uh, host the show, but there were rumors spread all over you know, social media, Twitter being first and foremost, that the cast of uh, – Saturday Night Live was not going to appear with him, that they were mutinying, that they were on strike. That, and then there were these bizarre Twitter uh, thingies um, 
he apparently put out a tweet which said something uh actually I can get it call it up here um he said um throwing out some skit ideas for SNL what should i do and chris red who was one of the um uh, participants in saturday night live said first i'd call them em sketches and then another one said um this is mrs betty bowers how about a skit where a selfish billionaire has a tantrum and makes a showy to do about moving his factory to another state but that new state is so dysfunctional it has a third world power grid and runs out of electricity to run his factories and cars. That would be hilarious. Um, Safe Mars <clears throat> writes, juggling some chainsaws while being on fire usually does the trick. And it kind of went on like that. What is it about Musk that attracts this vitriol? This, I mean, here's a billionaire who's basically putting his money where his mouth is. I mean, do you know any other billionaires that are investing essentially 100% of what they're making back into a stunning leap forward for all of humanity? I mean, look what he's done for reusable primitive rocket type uh, uh, spacecraft and propulsion systems. He's so dramatically lowering the price that at some point in the not too distant future, we are going to be able to have, courtesy of Musk, real tourist traffic between Earth and low Earth orbit and back again. He already is going to take a crew of eight average people, um, don't quite know where they're going to be drawn from, by way of uh, one of his friends who was a Japanese billionaire, on a circuit around the moon in a couple, three years, and the uh, uh, Starship, which is undergoing prototype tests there on the coast of uh, Texas. I mean, this guy single-handedly done extraordinary advances for space and, as you know, my proclivities for essentially the future of humankind, because without space, we're a closed system and closed systems inevitably wind up dying. So I really don't understand why he is such a target, because he's doing so many important things. I mean, look at the whole idea of electric cars. They've been toys up until now. Elon Musk has made electric cars mainstream to where all the big car companies, Japan, you know, Honda, um, Detroit, all the places, Germany, where cars are made, all the high-end luxury vehicles now, all are going to come with electric components because of the competition provided by Musk and uh, Tesla. Again, I don't quite get this incredible antipathy unless it can be put down to something as simple and stupid as jealousy, maybe. And we're not even going to go to the subject of girlfriends and all that. Anyway, um, so next weekend, mark it on your calendar. Before this show comes on the air at 10 o'clock uh, Mountain Time, you will have had chan a chance to uh, look at um, – Elon Musk hosting Saturday Night Live. And it should be kind of intriguing. Item number four, speaking of intriguing, item number four. Remember, we have been discussing now for many, many weeks the existence uh, via the unmanned NASA Perseverance mission to Mars of this extraordinary 30-mile-wide, 7-mile-high, ancient mega structure, a glass dome, now in very sad condition, but still with enough matter left, enough mass left, enough glass left, so that it produces very peculiar optical effects, given the number of pictures that the Perseverance rover has been taking and um, the ways that you can interpret the reflections and scattering and refractions that should not be present uh, over the Jezero crater unless there is something like a glass structure, which interacts with light on very predictable ways. One of the ways it has interacted with the light, and we saw this during the entry and landing of Percy, was that as you looked at those look-down images from both the black and white nav camera and what I call the color GoPro camera, you saw this bizarre glint reflecting back up from the surface, and as the spacecraft fell to the surface to be released 
from the tethers and, and the sky crane, um, and it got closer to the ground, this incredibly interesting glint, this glare in the in the images of two separate cameras moved across the surface, which was a dead giveaway that it wasn't some feature, some bright patch of reflectivity or what they call albedo, but in fact it was a backscatter from the sun, which was in those images literally behind the descending rover, behind the cameras. Well, now we've got some really amazing video. I showed this last night, but we had so many things to do and put in three hours, we didn't really get a chance to talk about it. Um, one of the reasons I've been very interested <clears throat> in the flight of Ingenuity, the little helicopters, because it carries two cameras, a black and white nav camera and a color camera. And uh, I expected, based on the entry, descent, and landing video, which showed this incredible backscatter of sunlight bouncing off something, and it has to be glass, because we now know from looking close up at the surface that there's trillions of little tiny beads of something incredibly refractive that produces under magnification little rainbows, little prisms, and that is glass, that's silica, and it's not natural. It's not, you know, normally sand is not transparent. It's opaque, so you don't get this phenomenon with ordinary uh, silica in, uh, in earthy beach sand and stuff like that. Anyway, after the fourth flight of Ingenuity, which took place on Friday, uh, NASA has published again more imagery, including an animated GIF, which we put up as item number four in my section of radio pictures tonight. And what you can see is the camera looking down and you see the shadow of ingenuity from the height of about <clears throat> 15 feet uh, moving across the surface from the top of the frame to the bottom of the frame as the picture um, kind of morphs because not all the images were nested and there's a geometric thing because the camera is not stationary. Um, this depiction is stationary because you can do all kinds of things with images and video and computers so that you can fix your position and have the uh, shadow move across the landscape. Um, after you kind of get used to looking at the picture several times and it loops over and over again, look at Ingenuity's shadow. Look at the halo of brightness around that shadow, which as it moves from the top of the frame to the bottom of the frame, gets brighter and more distinct as the angle between the sun, the little helicopter, and its shadow on the surface changes and becomes more in line. Because the images were shot uh, when they launched uh, Ingenuity at about 12.33 uh, from the surface of uh, Jezero Crater on Friday morning. Um, local Martian time, 12.33, that's just about noon. So 12.33 means it was just afternoon, which means the sun was not directly overhead. It was tilted at a slight angle um, to the vertical. And as this frame moves, as this GIF animation moves, you can see that the, the sun and the shadow congruent toward the bottom of the frame and this intense glow, this backscatter, of the glass, the trillions of little shards of glass that have fallen from the dome to the surface and been mixed with the sands and dust of Mars is readily apparent in this one animation. Remember, I have a saying from out here in the great American Southwest, an Apache saying, that it only takes one white crow to prove all crows aren't black. Well, if you wanted one picture to demonstrate the unique optical bizarreness of where the Perseverance rover and the Ingenuity helicopter have landed, this GIF animation showing this extraordinary glow around the 180 degree opposite shadow of little Ingenuity as it's flying above the Martian surface should be it. This is our white crow. 
And we don't have only one. We have many. And, of course, we're going to go through more of them and new evidence of what's really there next week, next uh, Saturday evening. So you got two things to look forward to. You have that, and then just before the show comes on, you'll get to see Elon Musk, who wants to go to Mars, wants to take humans to Mars, wants to colonize Mars. You're going to see him do Saturday Night Live. And, of course, the question in my mind, does Elon Musk really know what is waiting for him there? We shall see. Finally, item number five. Um, many years ago, about 25 years ago, there was a book uh, published, which was called, uh, uh, I'm trying to figure out the name here. It was, uh, uh, it was, it was called The Fourth Turning, um, published in 97 by Neil Howe and William Strauss. And it was a very controversial book because it proposed that America sees a turning, a political turning about every 20 years, a generation, as one generation displaces another. And this dynamic between the two creates a crisis every 80 years. And in that moment of crisis, new policies are put forward, are adopted by uh, uh, the mainstream, by voters, by um, uh, all kinds of other uh, individuals who are part of the American political process. And it it basically predicted about 25 years ago that following a period of great social unrest in 2020, gosh, does that ring familiar? There would be uh, millennials taking the reins after decades of boomers, you know, ruling the roost. And we would have the kind of social equivalent of the revolutions inaugurated by Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Um, at the height of the Great Depression back in the 1930s. And lo and behold, if you look at the political landscape, this seminal prediction based on this very interesting theory, which, by the way, was adopted uh, by people like Steve Bannon. He was very much a fan of this uh, book called The Fourth Turning. And as you know, in the early years of the Trump administration, he was a senior policy advisor uh, for the president, um, it's very it's, it's going to be very interesting to see how this this theory, this model, uh, works its way through the American political system in the next several years. Because from totally independent evidence, as I look at where the Biden administration is, and you know what's being proposed in Congress, and the political reception, even among Republicans in the electorate. It seems to me that we are on the cusp of something as revolutionary and groundbreaking and transformative as the revolution in society that was ushered in by FDR all those many years ago. And that includes space. It may include an extraordinary arrangement with the Chinese. It may include some pioneering and transformative directions for the National Space Council headed up by President Biden's vice president, uh, Vice President Harris. And all of that presages the question, is there something behind the scenes other than the natural rhythm of generational politics and the um, fickleness of voters with trends in and trends out and economic forcing functions coming to the fore that create these these potentials for change. Is there something modulating the background? In other words, is there some kind of uh, controlling entities or controlling group which is uh, doing things behind the scenes? Which, of course, is a direct uh, intro to my guest of the evening, who is uh, dark, uh, dark, uh, Dr. Mark uh, Mirabello, who is a professor of history at a little college in the middle of Ohio, Shawnee State, I believe. He has a PhD from the University of Glasgow, an MA from the University of Virginia, and he got his BA from the University of Toledo in Ohio. Some years ago, he has been on every show you can imagine. 
He's written all kinds of books, including um, uh, some fiction. And without further ado, Dr. Mirabello, welcome to The Other Side of Midnight. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's a wonderful opportunity, and it's an honor. I want to spend the, the few minutes we had before the break at the bottom of the hour kind of trying to figure out how does an historian with a degree from from Scotland a wind up in America teaching at a uh, you know mainstream university in the middle of rural America and b how did you wind up getting involved with secret societies which is not exactly the kind of academic uh, credential that trips off the tongue of most uh, colleges and universities anywhere in the world. In fact, it's rather curious. Uh, the fact that I teach at Shawnee State University has given me the opportunity to study the unusual, as I call it, the sort of frontiers and margins of human thought and civilization. And I've always viewed the unusual, uh, if you to use a biological metaphor, uh, most mutants are dead ends. They um, are born with some unusual trait, and they don't, they're not the future. They die out. But some mutants, a rare number of mutants, are the future and evolve into something higher. And that's how I view unusual thought, that right now the people winning the Nobel Prizes, the people getting all the recognition, uh, no one's really going to, most of us won't even, well, they won't be well known in 100 years. But somebody laboring in some obscure garret somewhere is is coming up with the new ideas that will shape the future. Now, how I got from basically Toledo to Glass to Virginia to Glasgow and back, um, well, my very first book is called The Odin Brotherhood. It's about Norse modern existence of a Norse religion, and they believe in destiny uh, woven by the Norns, these mysterious females. And there's, there's so many unusual things that occurred in my life. It's almost as if uh, things just happen in a rather curious way. Um, not to get too far afield, but my grandfather, from an impoverished area at the time in the mountains of southern Italy, arrived in 1900, could not even read and write, but he established a stake here. I was successful. And then my father took it even farther, worked hard, became financially successful, created opportunities for me. Because I was first generation, I just attended the local university. I grew up in Southern Michigan on the Ohio border, went to University of Toledo. Then I went to UVA because Virginia, because I thought, well, that's Thomas Jefferson School. And I got a really nice scholarship and went there. Mm. And oddly enough, while there, clashed with a professor there. Uh, and that led me to think, well, maybe I should think about going elsewhere. And I applied overseas, mainly to Ireland, Britain, uh, and also Canada, not to go overseas, and had some great success, uh, admitted to Oxford, for example, but Glasgow gave me a wonderful scholarship. I'll tell you what, hold it there, because we're at the bottom of the hour. This is too fascinating not to continue. My guest this morning is Dr. Mark Mirabello. He's an historian. He attended the university that Thomas Jefferson founded. His story is kind of like an American, typical, you know, American, arrives penniless, family, does well, education, and he gets to pursue his, his, his kind of, what they used to say, follow your bliss. In this case, the bliss is the unusual. How does the unusual become the usual. You're on the other side of midnight. We're going to find out. We shall return.
Hello, this is Dr. Judy Mikovits. And I've really enjoyed being on the other side of the news radio show tonight with with Kinthea, Tim, and Anetta as well. It was really a great experience for me. And I think things like the other side of the news, because we don't hear these things. I saw this horrific commercial on TV and I know them to have perpetrated fraud in vaccine court. So it's so important for radio shows like this to have discussions And I really think these types of radio shows reach a very large audience and people are listening. And that's what I think has changed everything. I just really think it's important for people to be able to hear in depth and hear the kinds of discussion worldwide so that we can compare experience and really wake up and heal everyone. Welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight for this uh, Sunday, May 2nd, 2021. My guest this morning is Dr. Mark Mirabello, and we were talking about how his uh, great his grandfather emigrated from Italy to this small town in Ohio, and the matriculation of his grandson um, from the uh, wilds of rural America to the University of Glasgow, back to the United States, where he is now an historian at Shawnee State University and dabbles in or does research in or is breaking ground in the rather arcane subject of secret societies. So, Mark, please uh, pick it up there. Yes. By the way, should I finish the bio story? Or yes, 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 by all means. Oh, very, very quickly, um, I probably ran that on too long, but Glasgow. That's why we have three hours. Huge. Yeah, okay. It gave me a huge scholarship, which had just been developed the year I applied for it. They had received a sum of money, and they awarded it to 12 overseas students. I was one of them. It was so huge. When I got my PhD, I had 20-some thousand dollars left over cash. Oh, my God. Uh, the stipend was just so generous. And then I returned to America after a short stint of one day where I was offered a job and West Africa and was had a disaster there, but that's another story. And I returned to America, and um, this new university opens in Ohio. It started in 1987, Shawnee State University, and uh, I was the uh, I'm one of the founding fathers. I've taught my whole career there, and again because it's so small, we were able to write the rules. I was there writing them myself, and it gave me the opportunity to do the unusual. Now, how, now to the secret societies and unusual subjects that I deal with, 
Scotland altered my life. It's such, even though my PhD dissertation was on a relatively prosaic subject of the late 17th century dissenter conflicts in the Church of Scotland in, 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 in the 17th century at the very end during the Restoration period. While there, it's such a beautiful country and mysterious in nature. The sun never is very high in the sky, a lot of shadows, many hauntings. Uh, Glam's Castle, Castle, the most haunted place in, in Scotland, it's all there. And I encountered in a small bookstore in Leith, Scotland, which adjoins Edinburgh, this mysterious man. And I was looking at a book on the Brotherhood of the Rose Cross, which is a Christian secret society. And we engaged in the conversation and he made me, created these contacts with this Odin Brotherhood group. But also when I was in Scotland, I noticed that everyone that is significant is a Freemason. Um, ordinary policemen walking the beat may not be, but the chief of police, um, the top lawyers, the top physicians, the top people, are all Freemason. And this led to this interest in secret societies. And my presently, I'm, I'm completing a book. Uh, the working title would be Secret Societies, A Skeleton Key. And I'm looking at these various groups and their influence. Now, I do know from previous communications with, with you and so forth, um, your interest is in um, power structure. Does, do these groups shall we say, exercise, are they the men behind the curtain to use the Wizard of Oz mm. image? Um, and that's technically called synarchy. The idea that the presidents and prime ministers are puppets and they're controlled by faceless people that the public is unaware of manipulating the system. Now, perhaps a, a better metaphor would be, again, quoting this time Charles Ford, most famous for the Book of the Damned. He died during the Depression, born in the 19th century. Wonderful writer. He said, the entire earth is a farm and we're livestock. <laughs> we are property, he said, of somebody yes. upstairs. Yes. And by the way, it seems to work that way. If you think of now, when people hear synarchy and control behind the scenes, the farmer doesn't really have to control the movement of every sheep every time, all the time. Uh, he uses a dog to control the flock. And also he uses what's called a Merryweather, which is a castrated ram to control the flock. And oddly enough, by the way, when, when farmers herd animals, it's rather curious, it's always females and castrated males. And they keep a few males for breeding purposes, but the rest are castrated. That's where the veal industry comes from. People don't realize why are we torturing calves? It's because these are the males that no one's going to raise to adulthood. So we kill them, raise them in boxes, feed them milk only, and then kill them for especially tender meat. But the important point is, is to control the world. You don't have to control it constantly. You simply make certain that the general direction of the flock is in the correct direction. And if on occasion, one of the sheep wanders outside the fold, uh, you, you slap him down or perhaps even butcher him or shear him or make certain he's punished in some level. And I think if groups are controlling the system, again, it's not a world dictator somewhere ordering day-to-day uh, -to -day what is going to occur. It's simply manipulating uh, the economy, the media, the education system, and so forth to get a general direction. And now, why would they be doing this? Uh, and I'll, here I'll plagiarize George Orwell. Mm. Oh, by the way, um, um, the idea here is um, that the elites, these, these hidden people in hidden groups, are intentionally perhaps and let me also interject here to the to your audience. Um, we're dealing with beliefs here, and beliefs can have a huge influence on history. Uh, it, they may not be true, but they still have an influence on history because people believe them. In the 19th century, there was a Chinese man who claimed to be the younger brother of Jesus. He started a religious movement that led to the deaths of millions of people. 
So again, even if a belief is not true, it can have influence. Well, we, back- we, 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 Mark, we have we have examples right in our own midst. I mean, the last election, you know, the president starts claiming that his his election was stolen, and most of his electorate, most of the people voting for Trump, believe that the election was stolen, and there isn't a shred of evidence, you know, overwhelming evidence to the contrary, including Republicans and Democrats and checks and balances and. All kinds, you know, hand counting of votes in in a couple, three states several times. The overwhelming preponderance of the evidence is that Trump is not correct. His election was not stolen. But there's a huge part of the body politic which is believing him based on nothing but belief. Well, actually, I'm going to make it very clear here. What I'm going to say next is not to support Trump or not to support Biden. But I'll make it very clear as a historian, in fact, uh, elections are routinely rigged. Now, uh, let me make it clear. I was going to say, I think you have to define what you mean by rigged. Yes. Yes. The reason no one has ever prosecuted is because both parties have been doing it for years. We have. um, But see, it's impossible to prove because the nature now, especially with electronic voting and also with the way ballots are counted, in the 19 in the 1972 election, my older sister was a volunteer in Toledo, Ohio, and they she was a college student, and they loaded bags of ballots into her car, thousands of votes, and a 19-year-old, whatever age she was at the time, girl drove in her own car across town to drop them off. She could have easily thrown some of them into the dumpster. There's so much trust in our system; it's easy to manipulate. Now, again, I'm not trying to say Trump was right on this. I'll make it very clear. But routinely, for example, a good example of rigging election almost certainly was the Bush Jr. victory in 2000, where uh, uh, he won essentially by roughly 400 votes in Florida, giving him the election where his own brother was governor. Well, and when they tried to do a recount, the Supreme Court stopped it. Another example of a strange election was the 1960 Kennedy election. It appeared as if the mafia in Chicago, because again, uh, Joe Kennedy had mafia ties. John was a good old Roman Catholic as the mafia men were, that they were uh, rigging the election in Chicago to help Kennedy carry Illinois. And then LBJ was in Texas and 500,000 votes were cast out by the court system in Texas. They just threw them out. And on a typical election for president, about 2 million votes are discarded. They never talk about this. Now, the interesting point about the last election, not was Trump cheated or was did Biden cheat? To me, the way the media and the system closed ranks, the New York Times, instead of saying Trump alleges, they would say the false claim. In fact, I get the man, the Guardian from Britain and the Economist, they did the same thing. And I was also struck when Gore lost in 2000, and he simply let it go. He, he let them take the election away from him. So, um, 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 again, frankly, though, back to the point I was talking about, too, with secret societies, it really doesn't matter who's the president anyway, in a sense, because, again, the whole system is going to carry us in a different direction. Um, but um, there, there's been some historically, um, uh, every democratic system has hanky-panky going on. It's not just the United States. Although, what But the question, need- Mark, is, is it significant hanky-panky? Does it bend the curve of history? Or is it, as we used to say in the physics game, down in the noise? Well, to tell the truth, I'm not certain, again, who won, but to insist that um, Biden clearly won. I think um, he was carrying, for example, if I remember correctly, I may be wrong on this, but if I remember correctly, he was receiving more African-American votes in Atlanta, Philadelphia, Detroit, and Milwaukee than Obama got. Now, if anybody really believes that, (laughs) it seems as if they were throwing in votes. That were uh, well, you, you can't discount the efforts of uh, James Clyburn in North Carolina, who had a profound effect. And there's also the backlash. I mean, an awful lot of people, again, by countless polls over four years, 
were not happy with Donald Trump. And they would have elected, you know, your average house cat if they were given the opportunity. I think we have this confluence. Getting back to the to the, the question where we started this dialogue, belief systems apart from realities can take hold and can move history. I think that was your thesis, right? Yes, yes. We should return to that. And it is really important. Um, again, something doesn't – and by the way, I want to make it clear, because I, I actually teach a course on myths and legends at Shawnee State. Um, there are belief systems in everywhere. It's not just in religion or in history. Uh, for example, we don't really know and we cannot prove scientifically that space is infinite. They insist that it is, but we can't prove that. It's only a concept since the 18th century, so it's a myth. The economists, by what I myth, I mean a belief that helps us to orient ourselves in the universe. The economists say that endless growth seems to be possible. They're always talking about if the economy doesn't grow, there's a problem. Obviously, endless economic growth is not possible, yet they talk as if it is. Um, and by the way, we hear in political science, you have the right to vote. No, you don't. You've never had the right to vote in the United States. The Supreme Court ruled that in the 19th century, when women pointed out that they were citizens but were not, were not allowed to vote in the 19th century, the Supreme Court ruled that voting is separate from citizenship. So we have these beliefs throughout uh, virtually every um, uh, field. Anthropology, now this one is, has a positive benefit, is to unite the human race and to stop conflict. Anthropology is now insisting that there is no such thing as race. Uh, but we can actually tell race from skeletons. Uh, we can tell what people are. So, but it's a positive myth. It unites us, a great brotherhood, the human race. And, and while I'm on that, I was talking earlier about um, the endless, again, wars, conflicts, and so forth. Uh, Orwell's book, 1984, he has this wonderful statement by O'Brien, who's the party member saying that the reason there are these depressions, wars, riots, protests, conflicts, poverty, slums, and so forth, is if everyone on planet Earth were educated, well-fed, lived in decent housing, and so forth, lived on safe streets, had no wars, it would become obvious that the elite serves no purpose. So the elite creates the problems because that frightens the masses into needing help, thinking these are our saviors. Well, isn't this the classic Hegelian dialect, you know, problem, solution, reaction, solution? Yes, exactly. Exactly. And also uh, another book that's commonly quoted in the United States, but no one ever takes the really meaty part of it, Malthus, Essay on Population. That's one, of course, that says that populations increase geometrically, but resources increase arithmetically. But that's not the most important thing he says. He actually says in the book that we must create slums. We must not stop epidemics. We must actually spread poverty and so forth, because if we don't, the poor will multiply and create a disaster. So he says that the uh, all of the bad things going on on planet Earth are actually benefiting the species. And in a sense, he's right, although I hate to say it because it's horrifying, but we forget that when we do eliminate, well, for example, Haber during World War I era created nitrogen fertilizer uh, synthetically, and that's dramatically increased the crop yields and caused huge population explosion. And we've, got, we've cut down infant mortality rates dramatically. Um, archaeologists find in North Africa. Yeah, but wait, 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 wait. I have seen curves. It was kind of, you know, in vogue back in the 70s that you can trace, and I'm forgetting where the study was done, and there may have been more than one, <clears throat> where as societies get richer, the birth rate falls. In fact, we, the United States, are not replacing Americans with Americans, which is why immigration is the life's blood of our economics and society, because without immigration, you know, that curve continues to bend downward as it does in all industrialized sectors 
So there's something wrong with the fundamental tenant because as societies get richer, they have fewer offspring. Well, that is actually true. For example, you look at, in fact, Russia by 2050 will have fewer people. Than oh, it's Turkey. vanishing. I mean, it's, it's, yes, like, it's, like, it's like a ghost town. But what we're missing the point is Kenya's population is doubling every 17 years. So doubling. what's the solution? I don't know. We make and Kenya rich. Well, very Kenya's, simple. Well, and we the, and see, we have the means to do all this. And the question, which is at the core of what I want to talk to you about this evening, is why don't we do this? Are we trapped by ideas which, when they're tested empirically, which I just laid out, rich societies have fewer children, so that population curve automatically tends to bend toward uh, either a steady state replacement or even a deficit. Why do we allow such discontinuities between the third world and the first world, et cetera, where in these so-called third world countries, you have to have a lot of children because there's a huge death toll and children are the mainstay of the elder generation when they become too old to work and need to be sustained without a social safety net. By the way, several points. Uh, one is, it seems as if in rich societies, we think people are making choices to cut the birth rate, and that's partly true. But I think also infertility spreads. It's been estimated, I forget the figure, about 40% of married couples have infertility problems. And we're not certain why. Could it be the plastics and the environment causing? It's been estimated that male um, uh, fertility, the amount of basically sperm discharge is one half of what it was in the 1940s. Um, and for some reason, this happened to the Romans, the Greeks, they all died out. And yeah, but wait, does, wait, the Romans and the Greeks did not have plastic. That's what I would say. So we don't know what's happening. Is it a function of when it happened to the Romans and the Greeks, was it a function of the fact they made the choices not to get married, not to have children? That's what our historians would say. Well, the, so the, 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 Mark, the, the, the folks that I've read said basically it's because when you get wealthy enough, you don't need children economically to support you in your old age. And people being innately selfish, they enjoy the liberty of not having children and having discretionary income and doing things together or maybe doing things apart, etc. In other words, it's really the central tenant of selfishness which when you're wealthy enough to be selfish, that perpetuates that curve to where you do not replace the population. Well, curiously enough, modern research shows in the case of England, and this would apply to other European countries, if you're of English descent, you're actually descended from the English upper class. Because in the 13th, 14th, 15th, 16th centuries, they had more children survive than the poor people did. They were dying in such large numbers the poor people didn't replace themselves. So clearly in the 16th century, the wealthier people were having the children. It's a really complex, I don't have the simple answer, but at one point I do wanna make clear, you mentioned, and it is true that you would say, well, to solve the Kenyan problems, and I don't know if it is a problem, they would say we're simply doing what we do. Uh, it's been estimated that to put the entire world at American standard of living, you would need three planet Earth. We consume so many resources that we would need three planet Earths to put everybody at our level. And um, clearly, and incidentally, some of these secret societies, such as the Club of Rome and so forth, talk about human population cutting it back. That's one of their core notions, that, it, that our fundamental notion. And it's been suggested that, for example, the spread of, of the, the, the birth control stuff, which starts with the pill, and then the legalization of abortion, also the legalization of pornography, because pornography, when it's widespread, cuts libido. If people are seeing nudity all the time, they become more difficult to arouse. <laughs> they become bored? <laughs> yes, it's actually true. There's no erections in nudist camps, people walking around. And in fact, Europeans used to comment when they went to these third world countries, that that's, they didn't call it that at the time, they never they saw naked men walking around, but they were never sexually aroused. And they commented on that. Whereas Victorians could get 
excited by the sight of a, a flash of a, of a female ankle <laughs> would, would turn them on. So it's been suggested that all of the, again, the, the modernization. Oh, and by the way, you mentioned how we need immigration to maintain our population. It's been suggested the real reason. No, I didn't immig- say population. I said the economics of the country are dependent on immigration more and more as the domestic population reproduces less and less as we have gotten richer. Well, Japan lost a million people in a five-year period because, again, their birth rate's falling. Yet they're smart enough, they still keep it Japanese. You can't move easily to Japan because they want to preserve their individual culture. And the reason immigration here, in fact, when my own ancestors arrived here, it's always been about cheap labor in the United States. And that's where indentured servitude, where convicts being shipped here, slavery being shipped here, then the immigrants arriving first from the poor areas of Europe, later from the poor areas of the third world. And they, when you have immigrants, you not only uh, have cheap labor and they drive the labor costs down, they also, you have consumers. When immigrants come here, they need to buy houses, clothing, and food. So the reason the floodgates, now I want to make it clear, I'm not trying to say let's get rid of immigrants. I'm just, because my own grandfather was an immigrant, my both sides, is um, the consequences are, it's not, we're trying to help out the human race, offering them asylum. We want cheap labor and we want consumers. And, but we tend to think short term. For example, uh, the last I looked, the American uh, national debt is now each taxpayer, if we were to pay it off, would have to pay $185,000 to pay off the national debt. It's clearly getting out of control. And in fact, this recent, when they've been turning on the printing presses, printing money, this is really scary because for years they insisted you can't do that. Germany did that in 1923 and got hyperinflation, but suddenly we're doing it. I'm I'm wondering if they're trying to crash. See, the the Germans paid off their national debt that way. They crashed their currency. It became, uh, by the end of 1923, it required about 2 trillion marks to buy a turnip. And the currency lost all value. And if they were to cause hyperinflation here, a homeless person, well, let me say, let's say an elderly person living at a rest home could pay off the national debt with a personal check. If it's now going to cost basically $2 trillion to buy a Slurpee at 7-Eleven. Um, there seems to be we create our own problems. And by the way, our, our, our agriculture, we now have only about 1.5% of Americans are now farmers. And the average farmer is over 60 years old, roughly 60 years old. And we're destroying the topsoil, all these chemical fertilizers. And um, it's almost as if they're trying to create Armageddon, at least a chaos. Uh, okay, but hold yeah. it there. We're at the top of the hour. My guest this morning is Dr. Mark Mirabello. We're talking about why is life on Earth the way life is on Earth? Is it because of uh, Malthusian economics? Is it because of social status? You know, if you don't have poor you can't have rich, you can't have elites. Is it because of some, I mean, I'll introduce another idea, an extraterrestrial control plan where uh, a la the Charles Sport model, just kind of cattle, we're being managed and maybe we're not being managed in uh, very important ways. Anyway, you're on the other side of midnight. Important questions. I want to come back to the three planet idea when we return. And we shall do so right after these words. Stay tuned. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. 
Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. Thank you.